Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, welcome back to BAPCAST. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be talking with Jason Vladescu about his paper titled Comparing Skill Acquisition Under Different Stimulus Set Sizes with Adolescents with Autism Spectrum Disorder, a Replication. Dr. Jason Vladescu is a partner at North Jersey Behavioral Health Services and an associate professor in the Department of Applied Behavior Analysis at Caldwell University. Jason completed his pre-doctoral internship and postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Nebraska Medical Center's Monroe-Meyer Institute. He has published 60-plus peer-reviewed articles in several book chapters spanning his research interests in early behavioral intervention for children with autism spectrum and related disorders, increasing the efficiency of academic instruction, staff and caregiver training, equivalence class formation, and mainstream applications of behavior analysis. Jason is an associate editor for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and is on the editorial board for several behavior analytic journals. He is also the recipient of the APA Division 25 B.F. Skinner New Applied Researcher Award. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jason and, and learned a lot. I think you're going to find his research to be very interesting. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Jason Vladescu. Hello, Jason, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hey, Cody. How you doing? Happy to be here. I'm good. Thank you. We're excited to have you here today to, to hear about your paper. Before we jump into the paper, we always like to ask our guests to give us a little bit of background about themselves. So could you tell us sort of what led you into this, this paper and I suppose the field at large? You know, sure. So um, I'm currently an associate professor at uh, Caldwell University. And so here we have a few different graduate programs that I teach in, um, you know, master's and PhD program. Um, so I just got a letter, uh, a note of service that I've been here for 10 years. So that's kind of hard to imagine. Um, and, you know, through that 10 years, I've been, uh, I've done a lot of research with students um, you know, as part of their thesis dissertation requirements, as well as other work. And, you know, through work with my students and, uh, you know, found some nice connections in the local behavior and in the community here. And so the paper we're talking about today was actually a collaboration with a, um, some local colleagues um, and students. Um, so looking forward to maybe talking about that a little more. Awesome. And I think that's such a, 
an important aspect of any potential paper is what collaborations were necessary to pull that off? How did you create those and everything like that? I think that'll be a tremendous benefit to, to the listenership. So given your, your current role in academia, and you said, you know, a lot of times you're supporting students doing theses and dissertations. This was not a, a part of anyone's thesis or dissertation necessarily? Yeah, that's right. It was not a thesis or dissertation. So it was a, uh, you know, a topic that I worked on with a couple of our, uh, one of my PhD students and another PhD student in the program. And, you know, we, that we were just interested in exploring and conducting a replication of um, some other work that colleagues in the field had done. And, you know, we reached out to um, a colleague at a local um, private school for individual, serving individuals with autism, uh, the Garden Academy. And, you know, they've been interested in doing research and we've done research with them before. So that kind of, you know, naturally set the stage for us to uh, do this project in collaboration with them. We spoke about this for just a second before we began recording, but replications are so important in science in general. And it's something that I've seen a lot of calls for in our field. And so is this something that you intentionally did? You saw a very interesting paper and decided, hey, we need to get some replications of that or, or what led you to wanting to do this replication? Yeah, you know, I think as you just alluded to, you know, more broadly, um, that replication is plays such a critical role in any science. And so naturally in the science of behavior that it will also play a critical role. And, you know, there, there is been, um, and has been, I think for a long time, an emphasis on replication. You know, I think even if you think back to and have read, you know, Sidman's tactics, you know, where he kind of really laid out the most comprehension discussion of replication that I've ever seen, and probably many students in the field would be familiar with, um, you know, talking about and distinguishing and delineating, you know, direct and systematic replication. Um, and then, you know, I think in light of um, the supposed, you know, replication crisis in psychology, um, you know, whether that exists or not is, I think, a topic of debate and others have debated and we, we won't go down that road. But, you know, that folks, you know, behavior analysts and folks in related fields, that's been a, you know, a really big topic that they've been talking about and whether, you know, our work in behavior analysis is subject to a replication crisis or not. Um, and, you know, what are practices and things, you know, we could be doing maybe to prevent that um, if it is applicable at all. Um, but, you know, that's something I commonly work on with students um, and they kind of make for um, good projects to work on with students because there's already been some work done, right? So that we don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel, you know, that we can kind of work on things and procedures and tactics that other researchers have employed um, to um, kind of investigate some phenomenon. Um, and then I'll just throw one more plug in there that, you know, because we often employ such small numbers of participants in our studies, um, that, you know, that's how we are able to demonstrate, you know, reliability and generality is through a, you know, accumulation of, you know, smaller number, small end studies um, over time. And this particular replication was, was replicating a study done by Kodak et al. 2020, comparing stimulus set size in, in TAC training for children with, with ASD. So was this something that 
you sort of saw clients or, or, or maybe the school you were consulting with had clients that you sort of had questions about regarding their stimulus set size in their training, or is this something that you read the paper and you're looking for participants who may, who may uh, benefit from something like this? Uh, I'll be, I'll be forthcoming and just let, and to let you and the listeners know that um, uh, I used to work with Tiffany Kodak. So I did my pre-doc and post-doc fellowship with her. So I've um, always kind of keep track of her work and her publications um, just because, you know, I have a lot of interest in the areas she's working on and um, she really does her and her lab does fantastic work. But I will also let you know that I was also the AE who handled this paper in Java um, when it was submitted. So um, I kind of had had a initial intimate kind of look into this study um, and had spent a lot of time thinking about it. And you know, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting and that they talk about in this paper is, you know, what are the reasons or what are the things that seemingly control the selection of set size, right? So if I'm going to teach a skill, um, you know, if I'm teaching, you know, tax um, to a learner, you know, what was going to influence how many I'm going to simultaneously select to teach? And, mm. you know, some, some, early, some influence might be some early intervention curricula. Um, but there might be other reasons influencing behavior, right? Like this is just what I was taught to do potentially or clinical lore in the sense of like, this is just how it's always done. Um, so kind of like thinking about it, maybe challenging some of those kind of established practices, um, I think is, um, a good way to go about it. And so, you know, we got interested in this because, um, I think for a lot of the learners, you know, and sometimes when I you know, view or you know, in, in clinical settings that it tends to be a pretty standard in some sense, right? That, you know, they're using fairly small set sizes um, and that just, there maybe isn't a explicitly, uh, explicit rationale for that, or there's not explicit consideration given for set sizes. With this particular study, you were interested in comparing stimulus set sizes of three, six, and 12. Those That's are right. the same stimulus set sizes utilized in the, in the Kodak study as well? A slight variation. So um, in the Kodak and Friends um, paper, you know, they compared stimulus sets of 3, 4, 6, and 12. Gotcha. And, you know, they generally found that those larger set sizes, the 6 or 12, were more efficient. Um, and one interesting element of their procedure that we kind of attended to was that you know, they implemented a mastery criterion that was consistent across all of those set sizes. And that mastery criterion required that the learners emit, um, or they could demonstrate mastery at two sessions at 100% independent responding. And so what that, uh, and I think that was selected with good reason, right? That seems to fall very much in line with like a lot of typical clinical practice and practices that researchers use in acquisition studies. Um, you know, but one consideration was whether that kind of produced an increasingly stringent requirement for independent responding as the set size decreased. Hmm. So like say that differently, you know, the smaller the set size the increased number of consecutive independent responses were required to demonstrate mastery. So um, doing some quick math here, if I have this correct. So for example, in the three stimulus set, 
um, the learners needed to demonstrate eight consecutive independent responses for each stimulus. Whereas in the 12 stimulus set, they needed to demonstrate um, two consecutive responses. Right? So, you know, that may bring into question, you know, does that increase in requirement, how does that affect, you know, how much teaching and um, efficiency? Um, so, you know, in our study, we, um, we set the set sizes at three, six, and 12. Um, and then we um, implemented a different mastered criterion across the conditions um, such that it required the same number of consecutive independent responses, irregardless of condition. Um, and we generally, and what we found was that the smaller set sizes, so the three or the six, um, seemed to be a little bit more efficient than that larger set size of 12. Um, and I will just, you know, give some, I, I want to be a little tentative in those conclusions, you know, for example, that, you know, we didn't conduct any intra-subject replications um, of that effect, um, you know, whereas in the Codec paper, they had a number, they conducted, you know, they had intra-subject replications. And so um, that would be just a consideration for future researchers to think about. Nice. Before we dive into sort of how you set this study up, I wonder if you could just sort of provide quick clarification as to what we mean by stimulus set sizes. You have a great explanation for it in the paper, but all the listeners may not be familiar with what we're talking about. Yeah, that would probably be good to clarify. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think Kodak defined that originally as the number of stimuli that are simultaneously targeted for instruction. Um, so you could think about that as, um, I think other authors have talked about this as the number of unique operants um, that are being arranged for teaching. So for example, in a you know, stimulus set size of three, we would have three unique operands. Um, so for example, I could teach a tact of a book, a tact of a car and a tact of a phone, um, and, you know, versus a set size of one would simply just be one operand, you know, teaching just a tact of a book, you know, in a kind of a masked format. And you're in with those stimulus set sizes, when you have like three, you've got three different stimuli that, that you're training attack if that's what you're targeting and you're rotating between those so you might have 12 total trials in, in a session and instead of having 12 different stimuli that you're targeting you're just taking the three or the six or however many you're looking at and rotating between those am i understanding that correct that's right so that's how that um, that's how it was arranged in both studies the kodak at all study and uh, as well as our study in that if you have three stimuli that each were presented four times versus if you had 12 stimuli, each was presented one time. Um, so each teaching session was 12 trials. That's, that, that's, that's helpful to clarify. Now, in terms of how you went about assessing this, how did you set up the study? It looks like it was done with, with two participants. Can you tell us a little bit about them and, and the setting that you did the study in? Sure. So, you know, these are um, not participants that I myself, um, you know, work with or had any relationship with, but um, that some of my colleagues do. So these were two adolescents and who had been um, receiving intervention based on the principles of ABA um, for some time. And that by and large had a history where they were, um, their instruction involved through, uh, set sizes of three. And that was in that, that you said private school, I believe earlier you referenced. That's right. And they uh, attended a private school serving um, individuals with ASD. 
And that that connection to that private school that was that just a, a colleague that you that you knew just from the behavior analytic community. How did how did that connection take place? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, what what's really nice about um, New Jersey is that we have a number of private schools serving individuals with ASD, and they are um, you know the services and educational environments are overseen and arranged by behavior analysts and. Uh, it just also happens that a number of employees of these um, private schools also are students in either our master's or doctoral programs. Mm. So uh, Lauren Goodwin, who's the third author, um, was an employee um, at this private school. And so, um, and I've had other students too, you know, currently one of my doc students, um, you know, works in a private school serving individuals with ASD. And so, you know, that kind of leads to some natural um, collabor- collaboration um, because, you know, they're doc students, you know, involved in research, you know, but they're, and they're working in a environment and that, you know, their practice is in a place um, that, you know, allows and um, facilitates um, those endeavors. Um, so, you know, these provide very nice avenues for collaboration. Um, so, um, yeah, so we, you know, we've been fortunate to do a number of these kinds of um, collaborative projects. Um, Excellent. Yeah. And it's always great when you can sort of get that synergy between people practicing and, and ac- academics primarily interested in, in research. In this particular study, once you had identified the, the participants, you obviously had to set up the design. Was it a design for the most part, sort of dictated by the previous study that you were replicating? Were you trying to stay within the similar design or, or what did you do with the design exactly? I'm sure. So, yeah, we used a very similar design to the previous study. Design is um, often referred to as an uh, adapted alternating treatments design. And, you know, that tends to be a fairly common design when doing these kinds of studies where you're comparing different interventions, right? But the dependent variable is some sort of skill, right? And we're talking about acquisition. Um, So, and I think a good question um, that uh, I sometimes ask my students to ensure they kind of understand this design is, you know, what makes it adapted in terms of an adapted alternating treatments design? And, um, you know, what makes it adapted is that we assign kind of unique stimuli targets or operants, however you want to think about it, um, to each condition. Mm. Um, and, you know, so that, that's what kind of, it gives it that name to be adapted. Right. And for the different conditions that you're looking at in this particular study, those are the stimulus set sizes. Is that correct? That's right. So that, you know, that's the variable or the independent variable we were manipulating um, across conditions is basically just the size, the stimulus set size. Um, so, you know, in this study, we had three different conditions. Again, that stimulus set size of three, six, and 12. And when you're, when you're implementing the, the treatment phase or the training phase of the study, are you rotating between or alternating between those stimulus set sizes, or do you do one stimulus set size and then on to the next one? What did that look like? Yeah, good question. So um, we typically... Um, uh, you typically alternate between the conditions just like you would in an uh, alternating treatments design. And we typically do that in some sort of what we call either random without replacement or blocked randomization. Um, so essentially, you know, we'll um, enter the three conditions into like a, um, a random list generator and that will be the order in which we'll run them. 
Um, and then it's kind of just rinse and repeat after that. Nice. And in, in terms of the layout with the participants, were they getting exposed to these, these training procedures or training conditions of the di different stimulus set sizes every day, or was it one set size a day or what did that look like? Yeah, that's, that's also a good question. Um, particularly from, uh, just like a control perspective and, um, off the top of my head, I don't recall whether it was, um, I, you know, generally we try to run at one at least every day. Um, right. But what we're also um, trying to require is that there's some amount of time that elapses between um, the sessions being conducted. And, you know, oftentimes because this is being done in practice um, and that as a component of the study that, you know, the stimuli that we're targeting were related to the participants' um, individualized education goals. Mm. Um, so um, that, you know, we did require some minimal amount of time. So maybe it's like five or 10, at least five or 10 minutes between those consecutive sessions. Um, um, but the idea being that, you know, we're targeting kind of educationally relevant um, responses and stimuli. So, um, you know, that they were being run as part of just kind of their regular school day. Um, so we kind of had to just keep going um, and we can maybe, you know, allow, you know, massive amounts of times to elapse between um, these sessions. That makes sense. That's something that I've personally experienced when trying to do applied research is you know, some studies you read and it says something like, you know, one session was done per day. And these are like little five to 10 minute sessions. And there's like a hundred data points. It's like, I can't, I can't take a hundred days of this client's, you know, uh, education and, and not make progress toward a goal for for 100 days to collect this data and so doing it separating of course the data points so that there is a a better degree of a uh, better degree of control uh, makes sense to not have to do it one per day or something like that I, I don't know how anyone honestly gets away with that um, from a applied side anyway yeah you know I guess operating in different environments, um, you know, may allow for different things. And so, um, and, you know, depending on the study, you know, studies happen for different reasons. And so, you know, what's really nice about this though, is, you know, if you're doing research, you know, this kind of more clinic or practice-based research, um, you know, to be in an environment that can really, um, you know, arrange contingencies and allow this type of data collection happen is, you know, um, very nice in terms of, um, you know, versus some other settings where that may not um, be the case. And so it may just be more challenging to kind of incorporate this into just ongoing clinical work or ongoing um, education. So we spoke about how you set up the conditions and the independent variables you were interested at within those. What was your dependent variable and, and how did you arrange that? So our dependent variable was, um, you know, what we call just independent correct responses. And this was done in the context of tax. Um, so we were really looking at independent correct tax. Nice. Um, and, you know, we, we then calculated it was just a derived measure of percentage correct um, per session. And that's what's depicted in uh, the figures in the paper. And what were the participants tacting or how were you arranging their ability to tack? So we uh, identified um, the tax for each participant based on individualized education plans and goals. Um, and so 
again, the idea being that this is applied research. And so we wanted to make sure that we were selecting um, stimuli that we were teaching responses to that were relevant for the participants and kind of valuable in some sense um, to their education. That makes sense. So that not only are you getting information around what stimulus set size is, is most effective in training, but you're also making progress toward their IEP goals or, or their education goals. That's right. And, you know, I think, you know, that kind of um, touches on a interesting point that um, if you, you know, if listeners or practitioners out there are interested in doing this type of research, right. In the context of their ongoing clinical work, that um, the idea would be that you are selecting um you know, behaviors and responses to teach and, you know, um, in the context of certain stimuli that are relevant um, for the participants. Um, so, you know, that um, no matter what, you know, the idea is that, you know, they're learning, say, novel responses um, to things that are important and significant for them. That makes sense. That sort of hones in on the, quote, applied side of what we do, right? The fact that we're targeting socially meaningful behaviors as opposed to arbitrary behaviors just to see an increase and decrease or something. something. Yeah, absolutely. Now the study was set up in what looks like sort of two phases, your baseline phase and then the, the training phase with the different stimulus set sizes. Could you talk about what sort of baseline looked like and then head into the training piece? Sure, so you know, baseline was pretty standard. Um, in that, you know, we are um, presenting um, learning trials and, you know, trying to evaluate if um, these stimuli um, evoke any sort of correct responding um, from the participants. And what we also try to arrange here is, you know, there's no prompts, error correction, or um, reinforcement contingencies related to their responding. Mm. However, what we do try to do um, is we do still try to incorporate um, reinforcement, um, you know, and access to reinforcement, but we typically do this during the intertrial intervals. Um, and this is typically um, contingent on just like appropriate behavior um, during um, these teaching um, trials. And so the idea here being is that we're trying to, again, match maybe the density or so or reinforcement. And so that like the reinforcement contingency itself is something that would be evaluated as part of our treatment and training. So no sort of contingent reinforcement on correct responding more so uh, almost you can consider it contingent reinforcement on just participating appropriately. Is, is that a fair way of explaining that? That's right. So, you know, kind of um, sitting and hanging in the instructional area um, with the teacher instructor um, and, you know, engaging in appropriate just learning responses. And then what, what did the training piece look like? Our training was fairly standard in that um, we uh, implemented a uh, constant prompt delay within a COIC prompt. Um, so we started teaching with um, zero second prompt delay trials where, you know, we'd immediately provide a prompt. Um, and after, you know, some number of teaching sessions, we would increase that prompt delay to five seconds. Um, and we also incorporated um, reinforcement. Um, so initially uh, for prompted responses, and then um, for independent responses and prompted responses, and then, um, you know, fading into a differential reinforcement 
um, procedure, you know, once some minimal amount of or independent responses were occurring. And of course, those, those particular training procedures stayed constant across all the conditions, looking at the three, six, and 12 stimulus set sizes, which then leads us into the results. So what did, what did we see when, when doing this training with the different set sizes? Sure. Yep. So, um, yep. All of that's inconsistent across the conditions. Um, so really, again, the only thing we wanted to vary across the conditions was the set size. And, you know, what we generally found again was that the smaller set sizes, um, you know, the six stimulus set size was most efficient for Lee and the three stimulus set size is most efficient for uh, Dion. Which to me didn't seem that surprising. I guess I had, whether correctly or incorrectly, assumed that we were going to see smaller stimulus set sizes produce uh, faster acquisition of targets. But that isn't what we saw in, in the Kodak 2020 paper. And so can you talk about why there may be some differences there between the two studies? Sure. You know, I think that's always um, an important point of discussion, right? So anytime that there's replication or a replication attempted and you don't necessarily get the same findings, right? Like why, why might that be? Um, so, you know, I think usually I'll first just be straight up and just say, well, um, I don't exactly know, right? But we can kind of maybe hypothesize, right? And maybe give some ideas or potential reasons why. And I think, you know, usually what we look to is, you know, what were the differences, right? Like what were the differences in what we did versus what um, was arranged in the Kodak et al. study? And, you know, I think one difference was, um, a potentially large difference was the difference in map, the mastery criteria. Um, so, you know, that I had alluded to earlier um, in that, you know, we set the mastery criterion to vary across the conditions um, so that the number of independent responses um, was um, the same. And, you know, in the Kodak et al. study, um, they had a different mastery criterion um, arrangement. And so that could potentially be um, one reason um, for that difference. Um, you know, there's potentially others. And I think, you um, I think some folks are probably interested in this topic more broadly, and um, I would imagine we'll be seeing more research in related publications on, in this area to kind of, you know, maybe flesh out some of these issues um, and other um, potential um, variables that might be relevant here. That makes sense. Well, and between the two studies, okay, really, at least for me, sort of brought to mind how we take so many things for granted in, in our training with our clients. And it, I haven't spent a whole lot of time contemplating stimulus set sizes before reading these two papers. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, whether you want to call it practice lore or, or whatever, where we're sort of trained <laughs> to just arrange procedures one particular way, whether that be from just following guidelines of a particular book or, or, or protocols or something that's sort of been handed down or recommended, or we just learned it when we were learning to, to apply behavior analysis, uh, there can be some arbitrary decisions made in there. And 
these two studies, the, the Kodak paper and your, your replication looking at, this isn't necessarily a, something that should be an arbitrary decision. There, there can be better effects depending on the stimulus set sizes. And so given that we're, I think, just sort of beginning to crack this can of worms open a little bit here and saying that it's much more complicated topic than we've really probably thought in the past. What are some of the future directions do you think people need to check out on this? Yeah, I mean, I think this, that's an excellent question. And I think if folks are interested in this, um, one resource I really recommend is there's actually a paper by Dr. Kodak and it's uh, Kodak and Helber. Uh, Mary Helber was one of her former doc students. So it was actually published very recently in Behavior Analysis and Practice. So um, big shout out there. Um, and it's called a Tutorial for the Design and Use of Assessment-Based Instruction in Practice. And, you know, in this uh, tutorial paper, you know, what they, you know, what they outlined was basically, um, you know, this idea that, you know, if we're interested in looking at selection of various different teaching components, so for example, set size is one of them, but there's others, right? So there's like prompt type, um, there's prompt fading procedure, error correction procedure, reinforcement arrangement, you know, so a whole number of different things kind of go into, you know, forming our, you know, teaching packages that we employ um, that, um, you know, if you are potentially interested in looking at and evaluate variations of those and how they might influence, you know, instruction and instructional outcomes for the learners you work with, they kind of present a like step-by-step -step guide for doing this in practice. Um, so um, I think that would be a super helpful um, uh, paper um, for um, interested practitioners to consume. Yeah, it's a really interesting paper. I was able to check it out. And in fact, we're going to have Dr. Kodak on later in the season to, to talk about this paper. And so if you're interested in that, it is a phenomenal resource. Sort of stay tuned and into the podcast and, and look out for that particular paper. Is there anything else that uh, you'd recommend for people interested in this topic? Obviously, they should check out both your paper and Dr. Kodak's uh, original paper. Anything else within this topic area that people should should check out? Yeah, you know, I think one of the issues that um, I, I, I could provide probably an endless list of <laughs> uh, useful kind of sources. Um, you know, I think one thing that we've been talking about or one thing that I've um, been talking about is mastery criteria or mastery criteria employed. Um, so mm -hmm. again, that's another aspect of teaching that there seems to be some variation in. And there actually seems to be some um, potentially systematic variation of what like researchers are um, arranging and what practitioners are arranging. And so, um, you know, that there is some work being done just looking at the, uh, the influence of different mastery criteria. So for example, um, uh, Dan Feenup um, is published some work, um, for example, Fuller and Feenup 2018 and Wong et al um, 2021 and where they're kind of evaluating the influence of different mastery criteria on, you know, act just direct acquisition outcomes as well as maintenance outcomes. Um, and so I think there's some kind of interesting potential work to be done in terms of how maybe set size and mastery criteria um, or, ma or mastery criteria and kind of interplay with one another. I um, mean, could be um, kind of looked at with one another. Um, That's so a fascinating topic. I. I could probably 
pick your brain about that for the next hour. I think mastery criteria is just, again, it's one of those things that oftentimes feels so arbitrary in practice, right? It's, it's 80% or, you know, honestly, sometimes I've seen things like people utilizing 60% as a mastery criteria, which again, I, I guess that's a huge can of worms. I, I don't necessarily want to uh, go into that right now, but it's, it's a fascinating topic and certainly something that people should check out and, and be informed on. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And so I definitely recommend kind of some of those papers I alluded to. And um, you're right, that's a, probably a larger can of worms. <laughs> we won't, we won't open right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for coming on today to talk about this. Thanks for really bringing this particular issue to my attention. I, I hadn't really spent a whole lot of time thinking about it. Fascinating piece. And into looking at Ultimately, it's maybe not necessarily the stimulus set size that you can just blankly recommend, right? You can't just say it's always going to be three, it's always going to be six, it's always going to be 12, but, but looking at it at a sort of idiosyncratic level for, for participants that, that you're working with and, and figuring out what works best for them. Yeah, I, you know, that's what I'd recommend, you know, that, you know, there's, potentially a tendency for learner specific outcomes. And, you know, anytime you're talking about us teaching and trying to establish, establish stimulus control, right, that we need to probably give consideration to the variables that might influence um, that development. And, you know, the degree to which we as teachers are able to establish that kind of differs across um, the learners that we work with. And so I think giving consideration to those variables um, and how you might um, manipulate them um, to produce that desired stimulus control would be important for uh, practitioners to consider. Excellent. Well, great recommendations there. Excellent paper, really helpful. And if there's, if there's anything else um, within the topic, we'll have links to everything we've talked about today. People can check those things out. And so um, Jason, thank you for your, your time and, and your paper. Uh, thank you, Cody. Thanks for having me. Uh, honored to be here and um, I'm really excited about this podcast. And so keep up the good work. Thanks. Before you take off, remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review on the show. Links are available in the show notes. Finally, thank you to the people who helped create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice the Journal. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. And my production assistants for this episode, Jacqueline Wilson and Tatiana Pilar. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>